0: This is episode 262 with Doctor of Physical Therapy, Certified Strength Coach, and our tour guide of effective running technique, Dr. Matt Minard. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode will help you run more efficiently and reduce your injury risk. Joining me is Doctor of Physical Therapy Matt Minard to discuss cues, posture, bounce, mobility tests, strength assessments, and more. Now, if you're new to the Strength Running Podcast, this show features training conversations, coaching calls, and experts in the running space to elevate your thinking about the sport. I want to help you make wiser decisions about your training so that you can keep improving. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. But Strength Running is not just a podcast. Don't miss our growing YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos on nearly every running topic imaginable. You can see those at youtube.com slash strengthrunning. And if you subscribe, you'll see every video that we publish. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. Since 2010, we've been helping runners around the world improve with our award-winning blog, our free email courses on strength training, nutrition, injury prevention, and improving your mindset, plus all of Strength Running's training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. You can see all those at strengthrunning.com coaching. A big thanks to Ice Barrel for supporting this episode. Go to icebarrel.com slash strengthrunning and use code STRENGTHRUNNING for $125 off your own barrel. I brought an ice barrel recently to the Endeavor Run running retreat a couple weeks ago, and it was a huge hit with all of the retreat attendees. Cryotherapy has been shown to improve your mood, reduce anxiety, and reduce inflammation. Use the code STRENGTHRUNNING at ICEBARREL.COM slash STRENGTHRUNNING and you'll get $125 off your own barrel. Stick around until the end to hear more about why I love Ice Barrel. We're also supported by Omega Sports at omegasports.com. With more than four decades helping customers run more, move more, play more, and live more, Omega Sports offers running-specific expertise to help you get the right running gear for you. Shop omegasports.com for your running needs. And look, I know it's hard to wait for the next episode of the Strength Running Podcast to come out. That's why you should subscribe to the Marathon Training Academy podcast. Their mission is to empower you to run a marathon and change your life. Here's what Runner's World says about them. If you're training for 26.2, running coach Angie Spencer and her husband Trevor have everything you need to reach the finish line. The duo provides plenty of training tips, interviews, and reviews of marathons from around the world. Angie has actually run a marathon in every state, and I interviewed her about it in episode 137 of the Strength Running Podcast. To find the marathon training... Academy show, go to Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and type in Marathon Training, or you can visit marathontrainingacademy.com. All right, our guest today is Dr. Matt Minard, a physical therapist, orthopedic clinical specialist, and certified strength and conditioning specialist. He runs the incredibly popular Learn to Run Instagram account and focuses on helping runners stay healthy, get stronger, and improve their running technique. I'm gonna have links to all of the many resources that Matt and I discuss in this episode, so be sure to head to strengthrunning.com so you don't miss any of those. In this conversation, Matt and I are exploring athletic posture, mobility and strength tests specific to running, the forward lean and how to get it right, why we should run without jumping, his favorite cues, and more. What I love about this episode is how actionable and practical it is. I recommend writing down many of the mobility tests, exercises, and specific assessments so that you can see how to improve your form. And speaking of cues, I don't want you to miss my favorite form cues that help reinforce proper technique and make many of these changes to your form actually easier to accomplish. Go to strengthrunning.com slash cues and I'll send them all to you. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Matt Minard. Hey, Matt, thanks for joining us today. It is
1: a true pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. We are going to do a deep dive on running form today, so I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on this topic, uh, especially with the subtopics of running form that I hope to address today. But Before we really get into it, can you just share your general philosophy on running form?
1: What do you believe works for most runners? So my biggest, my number one philosophy is if you're happy and healthy, I'm happy. I'm not trying to like change the world or conform everybody to run a certain way. But being, you know, working the front lines, being a physical therapist for 10 years, being a runner, being on the social media world, so many people are getting injured and it's still like 80 to 90%. And um, so again, if you're happy and healthy, because the truth is you can either have perfectly efficient mechanics, we'll get into what that even means, and still get injured with too much too soon, or you could have awful inefficient mechanics and be okay, as long as you go slow and steady and adapt. And what I found is if it depends on my market, if it's like 20 to 30 year olds, I could talk about the same thing. But if I say this helps you with speed and faster, they're all about it. But if I'm like, oh, this is for safety, you wanna be safer, they're like, ah, whatever, I don't care about that. But the old, like, once you get to 40, 45, 50, they're like, I wish I would have learned some of this stuff back in the day. So, as a general rule with running mechanics, again, I'm not trying to conform everybody, but if you start thinking of the world in terms of arrows, everything as far as arrows concerned, you really can structure running to be either efficient or inefficient. And what I mean by that is, if we think about running in its most basic form, it's about moving forward. It's about going forward. So therefore, if we say forward is the goal, if there's anything that I'm either producing from a muscular standpoint, or my posture is such that gravity is working against me, if there's anything that's going against or not with forward motion, it's deemed inefficient. And so years, like pretty much once the pandemic hit, like I thought I was the running guy then because I'm fascinated by movement and I'm my own target audience. Like movement is medicine. If I can't move, I get sad. I feel awful. And what kind of gets me up in the morning is knowing there's people out there that are injured that either don't know they need this yet or they want it or the uh, the time will be right. But I started to reverse engineer and find that the most common things are either jumping like when we transition, sorry, I'm just going to go off on some tangents because I get excited about this. So sorry if you have to redirect me a little bit. Uh, but back to the philosophy of running is just going forward. It's just going forward. And where most of this inefficiency occurs is when, we go, when walking is about going forward. When we transition from walking to running, when we're increasing our speed, we're increasing our step rate, we're increasing the distance between steps, it actually becomes more efficient to leave the ground. But where most people, unless they're trained, they leave the ground and they go up instead of just purely horizontal. And for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction as far as physics goes. I have to push purely straight backwards on the ground to create this forward propulsion. And most people, unless they were taught or have that trust of letting the body continue to move forward over the leg and then push, I say patience and then push. Most people undoubtedly will push down to through the ground. And if you're pushing down, you're going up. The only way to go up is to push down. So the calves, the quads, a lot of these injuries, we're just we're mixing jumping with moving forward. So my philosophy is if it's not going towards going forward, then let's get rid of it. An analogy I like to use is paying on the principal. If you got a house mortgage and all the energy you're putting in, all the money you're putting in towards it. If it's going towards that principle, then it's efficient. If it's paying on the interest, it's not going towards that principle. Going up, jumping. If my center mass is such that I'm I'm overstriding or breaking, I like to call it like breaking instead of overstriding because striding, a stride is just a measurement. It's really ambiguous. Just to say overstriding. But I always talk about just paying on the principle, and I like it because people get injured less. But people like it because they get faster. The money, the energy they're putting in, if we can translate that energy, meaning what your body's producing, from going up, and if we can translate that into going forward, it's crazy how much faster that you that you can be. So that was a long-winded uh running is about going forward, is my philosophy.
0: I <laughs> know I like that. I'll certainly encourage you to go off on tangents during this conversation. Uh and I I like that you focus on this principle of if you're happy and healthy, let's not start messing with your form. I've long said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, if you're healthy and you're running well and your fitness and your performances are progressing, there's really no need to start tweaking your running form. It's only when we start dealing with, you know, some of those big red flags when it comes to form or this chronic, very consistent pattern of injuries do we really have to start worrying about things like running form. And I'd love to get really specific into some of these principles that undergird your philosophy of running form. And, um, you know, one of those principles that, that I've seen you write about is that um, we should run without jumping. And you've talked a little bit about this, and I was going to talk about this more at the end, but let's talk about it right now. What exactly do you mean by we should run without jumping? Because I know that's going to be a little bit confusing for some runners because, you know, after all, running is essentially a a series of hops. So we do have to kind of hop from one leg to the other. Is there an efficient way of doing this? Is there a better way of thinking about it?
1: Yeah. So some of the cues that I'll use when addressing taking the jump out is I'll have somebody in standing, standing up tall look at something that's stationary at eye level straight ahead. Your height, where your height is right now, I should never see you go above that height. The only way to go above your height is to leave the ground, but go higher than your height. So we see there's a normal vertical oscillation that should happen when we run, but it's not an up-down, it's a down-up. And what I mean by that is when we first land, so you're right, single leg to single leg, but how we can get there, we can cover more horizontal ground is by pushing the, the ground backwards and translating forward. So if we were to look at it from the side, my goal is your height where you, when you run never goes higher than your body. So the definition of jumping is just when you leave the ground, going higher than your initial height. So there's different ways that I'll measure that. I'll either measure it with what I teach in my courses to physical therapists, where they have the opportunity to to video in slow motion, to pause and still frame. There's a position called peak vertical. And what I'll do is I'll find the frame, slow motion, 120 frames per second. Videos are just strings of pictures together. If you have a lower frame rate, it's blurry. You find the exact moment where the runner's head is at the highest point. At that moment, I run my first efficiency checkpoint, which is looking for jumping. If the back toe is grounded, if the back toe is still on the ground, they're gliding. They pass. They're not going to, they're not jumping. But what most people without training, you'll see is if you find that peak height where their head's at the highest point, their back foot will be off the ground. And so that's the whole teaching, taking the jump out. I talk about push with the tush like the muscles, the, the ways to do that are we have to learn the lean, we have to learn the posture, and we have to learn which muscles for the propelling phase. We just have to remember there's kind of three, I like to think about muscle uh, function three different ways. We're either lifting our body from the ground, controlling our body, or lowering our body, essentially concentric, isometric, and eccentric. But that's kind of as far as what defines jumping. It's Going, leaving the ground and going higher than your height and standing. And and that could be a super successful cue on the treadmill, although I don't like working with mechanics as far as I like working on efficiency. I like to work on step rate. I like working on posture on the treadmill. But when it comes to learning how to push back, how to push the ground backwards, roll the world back, when you're keeping up with a treadmill belt that's also moving back, it's extremely challenging to teach that on a treadmill. Um, but the, key, the same idea, I'll have somebody on a treadmill, look eye level, we'll use a, a um, magic erase marker, or we'll use a, a post-it note. And their mission, their job is, I want you to keep that image as still as possible. If you're going up and down, if it's going up and down your vision, you're going up and down. And then you try to conform your mechanics to make it smoother, The other thing that people tend to like is called the tennis ball necklace. So I made a tennis ball necklace with a shoelace and a tennis ball. And you measure it to the height of your belly button, near your center of mass. And then my cue to them, and when they run is, we're trying to take the jump out. This is your jump uh, meter, your detector. So when you're running, if you feel that ball hitting you in the stomach, significantly hitting you in the stomach, That means you're jumping. What goes up must come down. down. And I want you to conform your mechanics. And the only cue that I'll give them is, hey, I want you to try to keep this ball as still as possible. And some people, it's amazing. And some people, it doesn't work at all. That's what's fun about it. It wouldn't be fun if it's the same for everybody. But the two things I like about the tennis ball necklace is, one, then we teach them, if I have an external cue to make me run appropriately, we don't want to become reliant on that cue. So we try to mimic the mechanics. Tennis ball on, tennis ball necklace on, tennis ball necklace off. Can we mimic the mechanics and can we conform our mechanics to what it feels like when that ball is minimal as possible? I also show about breaking. So the three most common inefficiencies are jumping, breaking, and twisting. And think about the different planes of movement. With breaking, what it will show, but I have that tennis ball necklace on, I posted about this the other day. As I'm falling forward, when I land and load through the ground, if I'm breaking, what you'll see is the ball keeps moving. I stay back because I'm slowing myself down and the ball continues to move forward. So if that's the case, you'll also feel, feel the ball hit you. So it doesn't. it's not like you're either gliding or you're bounding. There's all this percentage in between. So if we can even take a percentage and back to the, the mortgage analogy, 2% over the course of 30 years over the course of 10 miles and thousands of steps, we can make a huge difference as far as someone's running economy, either from a tissue loading standpoint and not getting injured or just getting faster. But that's where I really like the tennis ball necklace um, as a way to at least initiate that um, gliding response.
0: I think this is a really easy thing for runners to experiment with in their own training because actually see behind you on the video, you have a tennis ball hooked up to a shoelace hanging up on your wall. So this is clearly something that you use very often. And I think it's a very low cost, easy way for runners just to get a sense for how much extra movement might be in their stride. And like you said, if that ball is bouncing all over the place and it doesn't really stay as still as it should be, you know, that gives you valuable data on some things that you might be able to improve with your form. And, you know, you've mentioned that some of the ways that we can reduce the jumping aspect of running and instead have a much more smooth stride. And and I think that's actually a really great way to put it is let's try to have a smooth stride. Cause when we watch some of the best runners in the world, you know, running a four thirty mile to finish up a marathon, they look so smooth. They look graceful. It looks effortless. And one of the reasons for that is because there's not a lot of wasted movement. And they don't have time to waste movement, right? Of sound running form that I think all of us can help emulate in our own running technique. Now, some of the ways we can improve that you mentioned are posture, but then also, um, uh, the, the proper forward lean that we can have. Uh, let's, let's start with posture and talk a little bit more about that. And, And I think that's really interesting because, you know, this is, I think fundamental to sound form because it's really how your body is positioned in space. How do you think about posture as it relates to a runner's technique?
1: So what I really have kind of like, how can I transfer this information as simply as possible? How can I apply this to foundational knowledge that people know? We're again, reverse engineering. So I've learned before you learn to run, you have to learn to walk before that you have to learn to lean and then learn to stand. So, in the normal order, learn to stand, learn to lean, learn to walk, and then learn to run. And I broke those four foundations into seven individual skills. Like there's three skills as far as leaning goes. But back to the standing, this is what I was taught in physical therapy school. You know, again, if we think of the mission, what's the goal? Can we reverse engineer it? When I'm standing, What's the main thing that we're always talking about? We don't see it, but what's the main thing? It's, it's gravity. It's all about gravity. There's this constant downwards arrow. So what we would do with people is we'd see when their normal standing posture, if I put my hands on the top of their shoulders and I push straight down, completely straight down, ideally that force should go through their shoulders, through their spine, through their legs, to the arches. But most people, what they do is they're standing in that lordotic position with their hips forward, that uh, anterior pelvic tilt. You push down, their hips buckle forward. So I teach what's called a stable stack. First, we have to learn to align ourselves with gravity, just that downwards arrow. We're not even talking about moving forward or back yet. So the three steps I have are, first, you stack your hips over your ankles, and then you stack your shoulders over your hips. That's step one. Step two is accept the stinky log, stinky, you'll see why. Imagine like someone's handing you a heavy log with your palms up. And so your elbows are 90 degrees, your palms up. And what this does is this sets your shoulder blades in the right position. So my shoulder blades in the right position. The final step of the stable stack, which is really challenging, is to get that pelvic neutral, that that spine neutral. So I've I've used different cues over the years. I've been using the Instagram following and asking questions like what, what resonates with you the best. If I say this cueing, what's the behavior, who, who does it gravitate towards uh, the best? But ideally we're just trying to get that bowl of water. If we imagine your pelvis like a bowl of water, we're trying to get it level and how I cue it is we're going to try to reduce that curve of your low back by simultaneously engaging your glutes to drive your pelvis downwards and your abdominals to pull it upwards. And I always have visuals with it. But those three elements, the stable stack, we're aligning our body vertical. And what happens is if I push through somebody's shoulders in that position, they're solid. Unless people think about it, they're either rounded with their shoulders, their shoulder blades aren't in that set position. And then when it comes to arm swing, it's a lot easier. Your shoulder blades are in the right position. I didn't tell you to, to get rid of them. These skills kind of stack on top of each other. And these are kind of setting us up for the pieces. So the next part's the lean this is what is super challenging there's only two ways we can lean and leaning is just hinging is just where the movement's occurring i can either lean at the hips or hinge at the hips or i can hinge at the ankles and what i've shown and demonstrated is if i have a stick to give me balance if i hinge at the hips and i lean forward if i pick that stick up i'm not going anywhere my center mass is still back because I'm folding at the hips. If I ankle hinge at the ankle and lean forward, and now I pick that stick up, I'm falling forward. So the two things that can propel you are your muscles. And the second is gravity. And I call it energy, free potential energy. If you maintain that lean at the ankles, you have this constant forward momentum. Because if you're not forward, you're, you're slowing yourself down. And the way I like to coach it to different uh, running coaches or physical therapists is a screen, if I'm looking at someone running from the side view, I'm looking at their right side, their torso is like the hour hand of a clock. If they're at 12 o'clock, the 12 o'clock posture, if they're moving forward and they're vertical, they're arched back, they're locking out their lumbar spine, their center mass is going to be back. They're forced to overstride or land in front of them because their center mass is back. The other is the one o'clock posture. If they're hinging at the hips, their, their torso is at one o'clock. I'm definitely, that's where we get into trouble because my center mass stays back. That's where landing on your heel, and this is a whole other topic. Landing on your heel is dangerous if you're hinging at your hips. If you're hinging at your ankles and doing the hankle, there's two separate phases. There's uh, landing and then loading through the, the leg, transferring your weight to the ground. But if someone's at that one o'clock posture, that's where we get into to trouble. But what we want ideally is the 1230 posture. And if you were to do the math, it's around 10 to 12 degrees. And it fits up nicely with one of the other things we look at with running is the tibia and the torso are parallel. But if you think about a squat, the purpose of a squat is just going straight down. I want to hinge at the hips. That's fine. I want to have an equal distribution of weight in the front of my body versus the back. But when it comes to moving forward, if we're hinging, if we're leaning at the shoulders, so that's something that if it's not taught, because that's not a comfortable feeling to know this kind of leaning at the ankle, it's not natural. And so one of the skills I do teach is when you're in this position of this this hanklet, a mini uh, lean, the calves and the foot muscles are the only thing that's holding you back. And I'll cue this, release and relax. Feel those muscles that are burning right now. If you, I want you to relax those and then move forward without your foot muscles, without your calf muscles contributing at all. Because if they are, you're going to be going up and down. So we're teaching how to use gravity for energy to move forward. Eventually, then we teach walking, where we're adding that push with a tush. We're adding the hip strategy to move forward. What I found is you have to do it step by step. Otherwise, if you skip steps and you try to cue in motion, we're cueing way too many steps ahead of time. But it's been cool to even show, showing people that aren't runners how to walk. Like if we could just try to, that's what gets me all fired up is there's so many people out there, whether they're runners or not, whether they thought they could never be a runner that that we can really, no one's taught them before. Like I can teach you step-by-step and I'm trying to get as many people on board as possible. Again, not to make everyone the same, but the injury risk, how many people do you probably know that, oh, I tried running once, I got injured, I never did it again. I can't imagine my life without movement and without running. From a mental standpoint, it would be awful. And most people, I think, get into running for weight loss and they keep with it for the mental health. I think a lot of people uh, stick with it for the mental component. But anyways, that was about the lean. It's all about the ankle, the ankle hinging at the ankle, not at the hips. I call that, respectfully call that a hippie. If someone's a hippie, they're hinging at the hips. If they're, I call this, they're stuck up. They're stuck up if they're at 12 o'clock posture, but it depends on who I'm teaching. If I'm teaching someone that's like I used to coach at Orange Theory, which also helped me to give all these cues of knowing and seeing runners at the same time. If I'm teaching coaches in that environment where all they have is their voice to cue and to correct, all I teach them is vision to pick up on things and voice to correct. Versus in a physical therapy environment, we have other skills and tools that we can use. So I don't have the seven skills when I teach it to people working on a treadmill or cross-country coaches. It's kind of what's the target audience? Where where are they at? What do we need to? But they all include that, at least the lean and at least the not jumping um, from a safety standpoint and also from an injury standpoint.
0: Matt, I really love this stuff. I'm very excited over here to talk about some of these postural fundamentals that we're discussing. Cause I, I just really like fundamentals. You can't get fancy before you first master the fundamentals. Absolutely, And you know, the part of the way I'm thinking about this too, is that a lot of athletes who might have been an athlete for their entire life, maybe they've been playing sports since middle school or high school, and they, they never had this long period of being sedentary. Is a lot of this a little bit second nature to them? The way they hold their body, the way that they lean when they're doing something athletic like running, is part of that just uh, second nature to folks who have been athletic for a very long period of time?
1: What I find is that athletes, a lot of them, things came natural. And a lot of them, like everybody, we have to eventually work and sitting and being in front of a computer. And it's hard if someone doesn't have optimal, if they don't even know optimal postures when sitting or standing at a computer, there's no way they're going to transfer those skills and just suddenly start moving with efficient patterns. So I truly think a lot of it is just the body will take the path of least resistance. It's easier to just let gravity win and to slouch unless someone's actually taught how to align their body such that gravity works with them. But also our ancestors, we weren't in front of a computer screen, in front of a laptop. We weren't sitting all the time and being forward. I always like to try to um, give the the cue of, I I teach people optimal posture, like kind of what we just did, whether it's standing or sitting. And then I give them the cue, if they're not moving anywhere, I give them the cue, you're a king, you're a queen, adapt the world to you, don't adapt you to the world. That alone, as far as what can people maintain? Oh, yeah, should my mouse be out here? No, I'm, I'm moving my body to that mouse, teaching the optimal posture first, adapting to you. You're a king, you're royalty, not you to the world. So, an athlete, sometimes they think they're like some physical therapists, myself included, we think we're above the law, like, oh, the gravity in the body doesn't pertain to me. I'm a physical therapist. No, it definitely pertains to us. So so I think athletes can get away with when they're younger, either they mask things or pain, or they were, they were in pain, they had to sit out. So they learned to push things to the side. But I'd say most of the people that I work with were relatively athletic at one point, but they ran because of punishment. They ran with sports. They just, they never really until they got older, realized the benefits of, of it. And we talked earlier, the tennis ball necklace, my philosophy with everything is I try to eliminate the barriers. If I don't want it to be that somebody can't learn some of this stuff because of financial reasons. I don't want you to have to have a $1,000 watch or a fancy treadmill. So even when I teach to the teachers, all I have it is they need a parking lot. They need a tripod and their phone. That's it. If we require all these other different fancy equipments, it doesn't make it as applicable or as scalable to people. So um yeah that was, that's my thoughts. it's a lot of it's our our day to day with our lives of what we our environment eight hours a day is technically a third of your day and if we're sitting in front of a computer and then we sleep for hopefully eight hours in a weird position and only one hour a day of that we're spent moving it's it's hard to um, hard to combat that.
0: Yeah for sure I found that you know, the body does remember the positions you put it in. And if you're not very self-aware of the your body positions throughout the day, that can really start to over time really impact your ability to get into that good, athletic, neutral posture. Because like you said, sitting at a computer for eight hours a day, it's not natural. And we tend to slouch. We tend to go into all these inefficient positions. It's one of the reasons why I actually have this really weird stool that I sit on at my desk that it has no back. Uh, It's a standing desk, so I can throw the stool the other side of the room and stand up and really just make sure that I'm varying my movements throughout the day. And what's great about it is that it rocks back and forth and it swivels and it's just not a very stable thing to sit on. And, and that really forces me to sit in a better posture, to have more variety. And, and I think that's a big part of not letting your sedentary desk job just ruin your mechanics over time. And Matt, one of the things about posture is that it's, it's number one, very general, right? Right. We're not talking about anything super specific, but at the same time, it's also very complex. You know, I think posture is affected by your mobility, your levels of strength, your flexibility and coordination. So if you're someone who realizes that maybe my posture isn't very good, maybe my stack isn't very efficient, how do you go about improving your posture when it's impacted by all these very
1: complicated things? So I, like with everything, I try to, in my mind, categorize it to make it easier. So I have three different categories. Uh, Technique. Maybe is it just the technique? They don't know the technique of how to actually sit or stand appropriately. Is it mobility? Is it a lack of range of motion that's not allowing them to do that? Or is it stability? A lack of strength? Do they not have the strength to be able to do it? So there's common, it depends on the activity. Running is mainly forward. It's actually a lot more simple than we make it out to be than different sports where we're cutting. As a result, with this, a lot of times it goes hand in hand. As a result of sitting for long periods of time, having our hip in that flexed position, our hip flexors can become adaptively shortened. And that would fall under this mobility. So, long, let me give you an example. I've learned as far as a process of order of what's most efficient, I start a Assuming they have the motion that they need and they have the strength they need. If, I, if we're having trouble, if they're not getting the hip extension that they should be getting, if they're having trouble with the lean, then I go, okay, next up is mobility. And you better believe it. What Think about it. If I'm trying to hinge at the ankles and hankle and someone can't do it, what, what motion is that? That's ankle dorsiflexion. So the number one thing when the ground up, if someone doesn't have the ability of their knee to go past their toe, or that folding, that drawbridge motion of the ankle, if we don't have the ability to do that, we will have to hinge with the hips. We'll have to hinge. And so the research says four to five inches, there's a test you can do where you go to a wall and you have your shoe off because having a heel height can make a difference. Shoe off and you go, I have the screen of take three of your fingers, the width of three fingers, you go up to the wall and you try to stand three finger breaths away. And then your goal is to keep your foot flat, your heel down, and tap your knee to the wall. Your knee goes past your toe. If you can do that without your heel coming, coming up, it's probably not affecting you. Your range of motion is probably not affecting you. It's a screen. It's not super specific, but it's at least a screen. But you'd be amazed. Some people, they can't do an inch away. And that's what I found through just tons of times doing this and videoing. If someone has one inch and less uh, away from the wall, it's going to affect their running. They're going to have some compensation. The body will find a way. If it doesn't have sagittal plane, it will tap into transverse plane. It will trap into frontal plane. It will find a way to move forward. So really common, the ankle, but then back to the sitting, the hip flexors. If I'm trying to push back, if I'm trying to extend my thigh using the glutes, what can limit that? My hip flexors. So if I'm limited with my hip extension, so I have another screen for that where I have somebody measure the distance and I can send you um, these little forms too that you can post. I have someone take a broomstick or a dowel and they go to a wall and they measure the distance between the ground and just below their kneecap. Me, it's 17 inches. Next, I go 17 inches away from the wall. I stand with my heels there. Now I move that dowel to my back, flush with my spine. And now my goal is to see, can I keeping that stick relatively vertical, can I tap the heel to the wall? If I have to compensate and hinge forward the hip to get there, if I have to arch my back to get there, if I have to go vertical, all those are fails. So that's another screen that at least need to have the ability to go that distance away. Otherwise it will start to affect the range of motion. So I think it's it's not as common as we think that the motion is affecting it, but it's, it's definitely out there. But what I used to do is start the opposite. Let's screen first. Let's screen for this. Let's test this strength. Let's test for that. Instead, of, let's just get moving. And then, oh, we're having problems now. Let's, oh, that makes sense. But it's so much more efficient. I don't want to waste people's time and I want to get to the root of the problem. And if it's if we're splitting hairs, of range of motion, it is, it's not important. So uh, back to it. I think if we think about just the world in terms of arrows, it actually makes posture a lot easier to kind of conceptualize because... It doesn't take a whole lot of strength to have the right alignment on two feet. On one foot, definitely. The moment I pick one foot up, my center mass is narrowed. And the only way to stay vertical is muscles on the outside of the leg that's ground have to work super hard. So, so yes, when it comes to running and being on one leg, that's where it does. um, It makes a bigger difference as far as the stability of things. But sitting and standing just as normally, um, somebody has to be super restricted to not be able to stand. If they can't stand, they've got more problems than this not being able to run. They've got stenosis. They've got major contracture issues if they can't even uh, stand up. But to your point, then what do we do? We work on it. We address it. That's where mobility work comes in. That's where, okay, I want to... Uh, do reps of driving my knee past my toe. The test becomes the exercise. I'm Motion is lotion. I'm trying to improve that dorsiflexion from the joint standpoint. And I think, what else can restrict? The calf muscles. Dry needle the calves. I may do some foam roll, deep tissue, anything to try to improve that range of motion. But here's where, like you said before, our body will remember positions. Gain it and then retrain it. If we just gain the motion and we don't teach people how to work within that new range, it's all for nothing. So we have to gain it and then retrain it. So we've got to gain the motion back and then work within that new range. And it's not that complicated. We can make it super complicated. It's like, hey, my knee won't go past my toe. Let's keep putting my knee past my toe and try to improve that range. And then we have to ask, what throughout your day might be contributing to it? And that's where always asking people, oh, I sleep. Uh, on my stomach. And I also have a heavy blanket for anxiety. So I've got the weight of this blanket all night. My feet are in this plantar flex position. Do you think that makes a a difference? Yes. I think that might be one piece of the puzzle. And it could be as obvious. I had somebody nine years ago, I'll never forget. This lady's neck was like stuck to the side. And every session I try manipulating, I try needle, I try everything. It wasn't until like the ninth visit or so, where she's like, oh, do you think it matters Every day for 45 minutes a day, I do my elliptical and my TV's all the way over here to the side. Do you think that matters? My neck's stuck like this. Yeah, that definitely matters. So back that, be a king, be a queen. Don't adapt you to the world. You adapt that TV to you. So yes, uh, that's, I don't know where I got off on that, but we got to gain the motion back. And yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, th- this stuff is great, Matt. I-, I really like some of like the at-home mobility tests that runners can do just to get an idea of, you know, am I falling within a range of motion that's acceptable, or do I have something to work on? And it sounds like if you do have some of those mobility issues, a lot of what we can do are you know mobility exercises like dynamic flexibility work. We can also do some massage, whether that's self-massage using a foam roller, your hands getting a partner to help you out or or maybe getting into a physical therapy office or a a massage therapy office for some of that. So I think some of those things are really helpful. And I don't know if you noticed, I was like turning around to my wall behind me and, and seeing, yeah, I did pass. I I got at least decent ankle dorsiflexion there. So I don't think I have to worry about that. Now, one of the problems I've always had with getting into the right position for faster running is that number one, like you said, we've got to have the good posture. And then after that, when we're running, we should have that slight forward lean. But the problem, like you've been talking about, is that if you just tell a runner to have a forward lean, 80% of the time, if, if this runner doesn't really understand good form, they're probably going to hinge from the hip and they're going to have that hippie sort of uh, yep. uh motion that you mentioned. By the way, I'm going to borrow all of these fun words you're using. Like you can have hippie, them
1: all ankle
0: (laughs) (laughs) exactly ankle and so how do you get runners to lean from the ankle when number one it's not intuitive you know most runners don't think that they should be leaning from the ankle because if you try to do that when you're just standing there you're probably going to fall on your face and number two i found that it does require a fair amount of strength you can't just start running with a good forward lean from the ankle when it's your first day out running and maybe you've spent the last five years being a sedentary person. How do you get a forward lean the right way by getting strong enough to actually execute
1: it? Yeah. So one thing that I was going to mention too is that one, how we learn, there's different ways we learn. We've got our five senses. What tends to be the most powerful is vision, visual learners. So if we don't show them a mirror or a video in real time, if we don't show them, you're right. It's like, what the heck am I doing? What I have people do is we'll have either a mirror in front or back What I was going to say before, I've, I used to do like um, little research on my Instagram and see like, have you ever videoed yourself run? Have you ever seen yourself run? 80 to 90% of people have never seen themselves run. And the injury risk is 80 to 90. And I've had people, it was fun for a while, people will be following me on Instagram. They come in the clinic and they go, yeah, i pushed with a tush. My arms are like a handsaw going forward and back, not axing going up and down. We video, they look and they go, oh, I'm, I, I'm not doing what I thought I was doing. And sometimes that's all it is. That can make that connection, closing that feedback loop of giving them feedback, yes or no. So, if you don't have a mirror or have a camera, it's it's super challenging. And what's amazing about the brain is if you teach it once and you give it the feedback telling them that's right, they'll never need that feedback again. And so I do have some things where you can learn at home where I teach you the stable stack We're learning, and the hankle, we're learning next to a mirror. And I tell you the criteria of what to look for to make sure it's correct. So ideally, the therapist or someone working with you would give you that criteria of knowing what to look for. I should see your shoulders stacked over your ankles, over your hips. I shouldn't see your hips jutted out towards the back. I shouldn't see your, your spine arch back. So visual feedback is so important. Just verbal cues. There's going to be some people that have decent body awareness that can get away with the improvement. But like you said, probably 80 to 90% of people, it's just, I think, human nature. We don't, it, having the proprioception, knowing where our body is in space, there's so many moving parts without seeing it. And we think in terms of images and pictures and photographic memory, if it's just words, it's just words. So we have to use visual feedback. So that's why I think it's super important of any clinic, whether just having the phone, um, but that's that feedback. I'll do that a couple of times, whether I'm teaching somebody how to squat, how to deadlift, how to plank, if you don't use that visual feedback. So, um, and the other component is if you're kind of easing into it, Think of it kind of like a barometer, maybe or a percentage or a dial. It's not either your 1230 or your 12 or your one. There's time in between. Maybe we're just doing a slight lean at first. And then maybe with time, we're just slowly increasing that to let your body get used to that. But I've learned you can only teach one skill at a time. One at a time. If you get like golf, if I'm thinking about more than one thing, I'm so confused, I don't even know how to hit the ball. Only one cue. Once we give it to them. We give them feedback. We give them permission to move on. Don't think about it. Because ideally, no one wants to think about their form. I understand that. But if you think about it now for a short period of time, you won't have to think about it again. You won't have to think about it. The way our brain works, it's amazing. amazing. Movement patterns. We fall one time. You realize, oh, I shouldn't lean this way. You learn pretty darn quick. Um, I shouldn't do that. So we learn through experiences. We learn through injuries, being wrong. We can learn through feedback, but again, it doesn't just happen. It's not gonna just happen. So having somebody working with you, having it, I'm trying to set it up where um, running clubs can have pick one person in there or a couple, take my online course. I always gonna have a version online only and a version in person, but I want it to be like they have one uh, leader or teacher and then they just everybody together. Let's go through these drills. Let's everybody afterwards. What was your step rate? What was your um, step length? What was your vertical oscillation? But even just having one leader of it, just to like say, or I've done this recently where I took um, a group here in Charlotte, had like ten people line up, and I have in a parking lot, and I have my tripod set up, and I always video the same. That way you get consistent feedback, and that way you can do before and afters. But I said, all right, everybody, I want you to run your intensity somewhere between a walk and a sprint. You're just going to do one lap. Don't go till I put my hand down and I had person go hand down and they're all running. And then I had that in slow motion. Then I broke it up later. I emailed them, gave them a tip. You can all look at it together. You can make it a social aspect, but it's something that fun that everyone can do, um, do together, but it's so scalable. It's so like, I don't know. And again, this is another tangent, but like in gym class, most people have to run in gym. If we could find a way to get this information to kids when their brains are like sponges before they have all these bad habits, can we maybe have people move better at a younger age and can we, we speak in such a way that's so simple? And that's what I pride myself on is this isn't about how smart I am. This is about you knowing the information. I don't care if my job is to be a physical therapist, to be a teacher. If I can't effectively communicate, I'm worthless. If I can't speak, what's the point? So it's not about me, it's about you. So I want to try to make it, and a lot of times I make it simple in my mind to be able to understand it and then, then um, relaying that information to other people. So I just, I found like through learning organizational psychology, learning how people learn, how the brain functions, how you've got to mimic the mechanics, then validate for like just how the process and order of everything. It, it is complex, but I'm really, really trying really hard to make it. Uh, to make it as simple.
0: Yeah. And something that is complex, like running form, you're not really going to improve it too much by making it overly complicated. I think trying to make it as simple as possible is the way to go. And I I will absolutely second your idea that you need someone to film you running. And, And I think a variety of angles is really important, whether That's the front angle to the side and then also behind you. And ideally not on a treadmill because like you were saying earlier, the treadmill is a different type of venue for running. It does have a moving surface, which is very different obviously than running outside. So it will slightly change your mechanics and it might either exacerbate some issues you're having or even mask some issues that you're having. So I always like to you know, if I'm going to be looking at film of a runner running, I want to see that outside. That's the ideal scenario for me.
1: And I can send you two that you can include is I have a standard operating procedure for how to film yourself outside and or indoors. And all you need is a tripod and it's a parking lot. That way it's consistent. It's six parking spaces. So, um, but I've also learned because I used to look at 12 different things. And when I finally started asking, like people didn't get anything out of it. It's cool to see different angles where I used to look at every single thing, but at the end of the day, we can only get so much information. So I've reversed and and whittled it down and whittled it down and whittled it down. And I actually have found that just that side view, so we don't have to waste a lot of time. If someone is twisting and turning, by focusing on this forward plane, the twisting stops. So I used to video from the front, the back, the right side, left side, 45 minutes into it, we're just sitting down and people's attention span. So Any information is good information, but if we're talking about just at least the bare minimum, that side view can tell you um, at least breaking and jumping. The twisting, you can make inferences based off of hand position, but that is where the back view helps to see if someone's twisting or weaving. But if we're like, all right, what's the most important if we had the um, the hierarchy, at least just that side view,
0: um, bare minimum. Oh, that's really good to know. I think that's helpful for runners who who want to try this at home for themselves and just kind of get an idea of how they look when they're running. Now, do you recommend strength training as a way to reinforce some of these good habits and also build some of the strength necessary to to have good form in the first place?
1: Yeah, I um, I'm on a three part my podcast episode a little bit ago was three things to make you uh, to train to get faster. They include intervals and strength training. And I always have people vote on the topics of what that want to talk about. And I put strength training as an option. So I'm a part of a a three-part series of strength training. And absolutely, everything, uh, muscles are responsible for all things movement. So we want to enhance that movement. We can enhance the efficiency. I, I do think that not all exercises are created equal. I always talk about with strength training, you want to train how, and more, the muscles are used during running. If you're not training the muscles how we use those with running, or if you're not training them more, there's 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 benefit, but not as much of a, of a benefit. But absolutely, if you're trying to improve someone's push, push with a tush, uh, get more hip extension strength, um, having solid stability, there is a point of diminishing return with some parts of the body if it's a stability part. Um, but when it comes to the two things that can propel us forward gravity we can't change that we can have the lean but that's as far as it goes but I can when I push I want to get more push out of my tush and definitely that can that can help as far as strength goes I, the only time I've really seen it is if female like young girls that are growing fast in puberty they have weakness at their hips they'll have like their arms out to the side because if you try to stand on one leg a weakness a way to compensate for weakness and lack of balance is like a you know a uh, tightrope walker, they put their arms out to the side. They'll run with their arms out to the side. And the moment that happens, they're gonna, wasting energy with their delts. They're going to have more twisting as a result. So I say if there's an area that it is a strength component that will affect their form, it's uh, the queen of the glutes, I call her, the glute mead definitely um, can be something that is a, is a must. Um, and I have screens for that too that you can do. But um, yeah, I think from a, a performance standpoint, I think strength training is extremely helpful. From a rehabilitation standpoint, when pain's involved, I don't think that strength training is as important. If we're talking about pain, we have to go over why is it painful in the first place. But once we can get pain out of the way and we're talking about performance, my goodness. And I mean, it's just like your framework of your body. Strength training is just building up the resiliency and building up your body. But again, it has to be uh, trained how we use the muscles and more. Like back to the example of the glute mead. If I'm only doing clamshells and I'm on my side and I'm just using the weight of my leg, and I'm doing concentric eccentric activation, that's not really how we use the muscle, the glute, need when we're when we're running. So we have to make sure we challenge it in a similar fashion than we do when we're than um, we're running. So long answer short is definitely I think strength training has a place, but what I don't like is where people you have knee pain they go to the therapist they say oh my quads weak I just have to strengthen my quad more. No, it hurts because the silent culprit, noisy victim. Maybe you're lacking hip extension. Maybe you're lacking ankle dorsiflexion, so you're putting more stress. Maybe you're not leaning, or maybe you're hinging at the hip, so you're getting that breaking force, and your knees taking a beating. It's weak because it hurts, or it's inhibited. It's not. The answer isn't just strengthen more. So that's the only thing that gets me fired up is when we need to be better as physical therapists. Of just oh, it's weak. We just got to strengthen everything, and all our problems will go away. No, some will definitely. But from a mechanic standpoint, if somebody is constantly uh, turning their head to the side all day and we try to strengthen the core, as long as they're doing that, the causation, we're just treating symptoms. So performance versus rehab, there's never a time where it's really not beneficial unless it's just bothering somebody with loading. So long story short, yes.
0: One of the things you said was that, you know, the clamshell exercise, for example, you know, great exercise, it'll target the glute need. But at the same time, it's not extraordinarily uh, running specific. And if we want to really use the muscles in the same way or a very similar way as running itself, we should try to make some of these exercises as specific as we can to the sport of running. How do we do that? Is this is this where single leg exercises come in and, and things like
1: that? Yeah, a couple of ways. Uh, One is in standing. I I have what I call amplifiers. By me, one, just doing any single leg, anything single leg alone, and trying to make sure we have this symmetry rectangle, or if I have headlights coming out of my shoulders and my hips, as long as I'm not making a rhomboid or twisting, my goal is to keep that symmetry rectangle. Being on one leg, whether it be step-ups, reverse sliders, single leg Romanian deadlifts, that alone is going to work the glute. But to amplify, to get it more, having a dumbbell, a kettlebell, some resistance in the opposite side. So when I'm standing, let's say on my left leg, the moment I pick my right foot off the ground, there creates this downwards force where it's this adduction moment on the leg that's on the ground. My glute med has to match that to avoid collapsing. I can increase the demand by holding a weight on the opposite side to create more of an adduction moment well, then my glutes will have to work even harder. So Farmers carries um, single leg or single arm dumbbell step-ups, but having an amplifier where you have a weight in the opposite side, if you literally have it on the same side, it actually makes it easier and less uh, because it creates an abduction force for your hip and it works with it. So if we're trying to challenge it more, single leg and using unilateral movements is really what it's all about. Running is, there's never a time, unless you're walking, which you're not running, there's never a time where both feet are on the ground ever. There's always at least one foot or it's flight time, but only one foot on the ground. So our strengthening needs to to at least mimic that in some capacity. And to your point, if we really think about it with like clamshells on your side, when people go into 60 degrees of hip flexion and then they're rotating out, there's never a time when we're running where we're in 60 degrees of hip flexion and then rotating out. Like Nobody runs like that. They'd be maybe marching. So thinking loaded standing single leg unilateral um try not to make it too complex but just doing step up something it has to, it can be simple i think we think it has to be sexy it has to be super complicated and look cool to your point, and always the foundations just the foundations cuz if some people think it's too complicated they won't do it and they'll think oh, i don't have time i don't know how to do it it's not we can make it simple it's not it doesn't have to be complicated
0: yeah hopefully not I've sort of made a career out of trying to very simply get runners to do some more strength training with a lot of different, you know, 8 to 12-minute strength or core routines that have you go through a bunch of these different types of exercises. And I've tried to keep them very approachable. And, you know, for this in particular, you know, I have a routine called the MACE single leg routine where every exercise is a, a unilateral exercise and you're working on one side at a time. And I think that's a really valuable way of building the very running specific strength you need for an efficient stride and and not having all that wasted movement where you might be rotating or, or leaning to one side when you're not supposed to be.
1: Yeah. And I found too, like with a lot of like um, – One, they don't want to do it, training, strength training. But if you can show them, you can either show them a deficit or show them an area for improvement. Like example, you can just make up your own test. If you do a a 10-inch step and you say, all right, I want to time. How many seconds does it take you to get 20 step downs on the right? How many seconds does it take you to get 20 step downs on the left? And if they're like 80% or there's asymmetries, like, oh, I didn't know that. I definitely got to strengthen Or you say, how many reps did you get? Can we try to work to get more? So showing someone someone like a quantitative number, because yeah, it is hard to get people to do things, but if you can at least show them some way of why it's beneficial, because we know it's beneficial and us telling them that's not enough for people to actually do it. But if we can show them, they're like, ah, I can see. So sorry to cut you off. I just thought about that.
0: No, that's important. And I think it's very similar to some of those mobility tests that you mentioned earlier. You know, let's actually test our body. Let's see what mobility restrictions we might have. Let's see where our strength might be imbalanced from our right side to our left side. And I think that can be really helpful as a diagnostic tool and just a fun way to get to know yourself better as a runner in the comfort of your own home, right?
1: It can tailor your treatments of like knowing what to work on and
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that can be super helpful and and just part of the learning process because that's really what we're talking about. Let's learn more about ourselves and how we move so that we can continue doing what we love, which is running. And we have mentioned this a couple times. I'd love to explore it a little bit more. This concept of uh, form cues. You know, I have a bunch of cues that I like to use with runners and I'm in complete agreement with you that verbal instruction is not enough you need sort of all the ingredients to this recipe, right? Or you're not going to have really great form for you individually. But I do think cues are part of this list of ingredients that we need. So I'm just curious, what are some of your favorite verbal cues that you like to use with runners to help them, you know, think a little bit more productively about efficient technique?
1: So I just, uh, I'm publishing a course now for, coaches for working with people on a treadmill but it really applies to both not only not only what cues to give but when to give them and so knowing having a spot example so example i'll get into some cues if you see somebody's wrist going above their elbows that immediately cues in your mind they're jumping they're bounding they're going up and down and then that cues you say oh i've got this list of cues that i can use over time, which ones have I used that people gravitated towards the most? So if someone's jumping, um, I like the cue of don't bonk your head on the low ceiling. Push with the tush. To break that down real quick, it's easier to conceptualize it this way. If I'm in a canoe on the water and all I have is a paddle, how I move forward is I put the paddle in the water and I push the water back. I push the water back to move forward. That's push with the tush. That's your glute max muscle extending your thigh, extending your hip to move forward. So if someone doesn't know what the tush does and I say push with the tush, that doesn't mean anything. But I like the, um, in your mind, patience. So when they first land, not immediately trying to pick their foot up right away, patience and then push back. Some people like to roll the world back. Imagine like you're uh, landing on the world, try to roll the world back. Um, the stable gaze of look at something eye level. Um, Those are the most common for the bounding. If I see somebody that's at that 12 o'clock posture, that means they're not leaning at all. I'll give cues to them of uh, try to close your ribs in the front, your ribs are flaring. See if you can try to activate your core and see if that closes it. And usually while they're running, that doesn't work, but uh, you could say, look lower. If someone's looking up and running up, they're usually just the cue, look lower. They tend to have assumed the right posture better. Um, Some other ones of if they're hinging at the hips and they're hinging forward, I'll say unfold your hips and run taller and see if that makes the desired uh, change. The one that people do like a lot is, you know, running is forward and back or going forward arms, the role of the arms with running is to merely just mimic the legs. They assist the legs in this reciprocal movement. If I'm a picture, I have a uh, holding a handsaw versus holding an axe. And if we're trying to get 180 steps per minute, which is three hertz, which is three steps or three arm swings per one second. If I'm going up and down and articulating at the elbow, not at the shoulder, and I'm chopping up and down by teaching people the uh, imagine like you you have a hand saw and you're just sawing forward and back when you're running or same idea. Imagine like you have a, a towel under your little back a hand towel and you're trying to dry off your lower back forward and back forward and back. So people like, uh, that one, the other one that can be really helpful. Actually, I had a session yesterday, two different, uh, cues, but one was more effective than the other. He was picking his feet up and kicking his butt at slow speeds, and the first cue I gave him was try to keep your feet close to the ground at all times. It didn't it changed a little bit, but not consistently. So then I went with, imagine there's a magnet in your heel and your glute. Keep your heel away from your butt. They're enemies. Do not let your heel get anywhere near your butt. That did it. That opened it up. And then that's all he thinks about and we videoed before and after. But that's what's fun about it is finding the right cue. That pertains to people. If I tell uh, someone that doesn't have kids, don't, don't kick the baby. Uh, If they're used to running with a stroller, what I'm trying to say is don't have the leg continue to go out in front, bring the foot back underneath you. Don't bonk your shin on the baby. Don't kick the baby. If I tell that to someone that doesn't have a baby, they're like, what the heck is this guy talking about? So just finding different, um, different cues for it. But those are probably the most, some of the most common ones are people like the handsaw, keeping your feet low, keep your heel away from your butt. Um, and those are the big ones. Like you said, in action, it's really challenging. I'll still try to give a cue in action, but usually it, it doesn't, it doesn't do it. But that's what I love is like, I tried the same guy yesterday, cueing the arm swing and it, it wasn't doing it. Some people have better control of their arms. So it was amazing how some people immediately gravitate. And for him, it's like, he wasn't doing it. But then when I cued him to keep the heels away, now he was doing it and he wasn't thinking about it. So we don't have to always think about every single thing. It's patterns of of movement. So, um,
0: yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, Matt. We probably shouldn't be thinking about our form too much as we're out there running, especially if we're doing a faster workout or running a race where our mind really needs to be on the task at hand. So a lot of what we're talking about r- right now is, you know, the final one to 5% of optimizing your training and making sure that. You know, your form is as efficient as it can be based on your own limitations and your physiology. Uh, but, you know, I think you're absolutely right that we should be worrying about this every minute of every run. You know, we should strategically work on it and then kind of let those results speak for themselves. And, you know, I love that handsaw cue. I'm going to use that for myself because I think that's one of my issues. One, one of many, of course, my form isn't, isn't perfect, but I tend to to uh, bend my elbow a little bit more than probably use my sh- shoulder. And so I yeah, am, I, I saw am, a
1: picture of you the other day. You were, I wasn't going to say anything, but yeah, you were, uh, you said, how's my form on the track? And I was like, ah, it's okay. You know,
0: that, that was an interesting picture though. We were actually doing like weird bounding exercises. So that was oh, a little okay. different, but <laughs> I gotcha. yeah, I'm Yeah, i probably going to be sending you all kinds of video and pictures of me now to, to see what you think, or maybe I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. Ignorance is bliss. Sometimes. But, Yeah. I'm kind of joking there, but Matt, you know what I've loved about this conversation is the fact that it is so extraordinarily practical and actionable. You have given us mobility tests. You've given us strength tests and very actionable cues that we can use as we're out there training to really reinforce some of these big high-level principles of effective running form. So I just want to thank you for your, for your expertise and sort of like you're on the ground working with runners, you know, in person. I, I think this is a really valuable way of thinking about form. Um, is there anything I might have missed in our discussion of running form that you want to touch on from cues to the bounce to the forward lean. I know we haven't talked too much about heel strike or how the foot should strike the ground. Maybe that can be a conversation for another day, but anything else?
1: I think just to your point where you said before, where I found that it's most helpful to work on these things, these mechanics is think of it like reps or like laps. If it's at a track, maybe you only have 50 meters. And what you're doing is you're doing, I want you to do 10 laps where you're thinking about this one cue down back, as we get better at it, only on every other. I want you to think about it going or use the visual cue this one this time and not on the way back. So thinking about it in terms of reps, not just while you're going, because if you just think about it while you're doing it, that's essentially like just one kind of long rep. How the brain works, it, it, it does better with this reset, repeat, and kind of going through the, the motions with it. So as far as motor patterns and motor learning, having either a parking lot, and going, you know, six parking spaces down and back, each one working on something different. But yeah, the key is making it one at a time, making it simple because for anyone that, always I hear, oh, I didn't realize this was a thing. Like we don't really think about the form or the mechanics that much, but it is, it's so important of how we move. And we think about the paying on the principle and these small little changes can really add up over time. And I'm someone that used to be 220 pounds, power lifter, 10 minute miles. And I'm still not gifted. I have flat feet. I'm asthmatic. Asthmatic. I weigh 200 pounds, but I got pretty fast. I'm not super fast. But for me, if you were to told me someday I'd be able to run a five-minute mile on a treadmill, I'd say there's no way. Or a 20-minute 5K, I would say there's no way. So it's not super, super fast, but it's a lot faster than, I, than I've been. So that's what keeps me coming back is seeing, having people on the Instagram with giving these simple feedback and a certain level of value that people can at least take away I shaved 30 minutes off of my half marathon time. I passed my army ranger school test, my two mile test for the military. I thought I was going to be kicked out because I couldn't run at a certain time. And so that's what's really I love is some people have to do this uh, for a living with running. And so I love just being able to find different ways to, to get it out there. And again, it just goes back to my if I'm trying to make this about me and make it sound a certain way. I could do that it would do nobody any good. I just want to give information out that's uh, applicable, it's digestible and I love doing it. Well, I think you
0: succeeded here today Matt. So thank you very much. If folks want to learn more about you and your work, where can they
1: go? So my where it all started was my Instagram, learn.to the number 2.run. That's where I spend most of my time. Um, I've got a podcast now with Omega Sports. Every two weeks, we come out with a new one. The viewers, the followers vote on that. On my Instagram, I'll put three topics. And then whatever is the most popular, I'll create an episode around that. And what I do is I talk about on the podcast. I do more lecture on my YouTube. And then on my Instagram, I have shorter form content. So um, those are the big big things is uh, Instagram, uh, YouTube, and uh, my podcast. But learn to run is uh, type that in Google and with the number two, and it will come up.
0: Awesome. Well, I will include links to that in the show notes on strength running. And I do get to say, I really love your Instagram account. You share some really helpful uh, tips and pieces of advice and videos for runners. So thank you for that. Matt, thanks for your time today.
1: I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And hopefully I will talk to you soon.
0: Thanks for listening in, my friends. If you found value in this episode, I would so appreciate a review in Apple Music or wherever you happen to listen to your podcasts. And if you do love the show, please consider supporting our sponsors who help make it possible. Using the links and discount codes below, tell our sponsors that their marketing is working and they will continue supporting the show so that I can keep making episodes. First, thank you to Ice Barrel for helping me publish this episode. Learn more about how they can help you at icebarrel.com slash strengthrunning. And code strength-running will save you $125 off your own ice barrel. They make these at-home barrels that you can use for ice baths that don't take up an entire room, and they're lightweight enough that even I can carry it without help. There's an easy drain system, and it's made right here in the United States from 100% recycled material. But the real reason I love a good cold plunge is because of the mental benefits. You might be surprised to hear it because most people like ice baths for physical recovery. And look, it's true. They can reduce inflammation and pain and blood flow to help jumpstart the recovery process. But runners don't actually wanna do this after every single run. It'll short circuit the adaptation process because some inflammation is actually a good thing. It helps us adapt and improve. Instead, cold plunges are great for when you do need extra recovery. Like if you accidentally run a lot longer than you planned or you ran that workout on your training plan much faster than prescribed. For those times when extra recovery is a good thing, it's time for that ice bath. Plus, the mental benefits are profound. It's been shown to reduce depression and anxiety, improve your mood and brain function, and even five minutes gives you a great shot of dopamine afterward. You're just gonna feel great. And if you can sit in an ice bath up to your shoulders, you're not gonna have any mental issues with racing a negative split and finishing strong in your next race. You will be mentally fit. Go to icebarrel.com slash strengthrunning and use discount code STRENGTHRUNNING for $125 off your own barrel. Finally, a big thanks to Omega Sports for their support. If you're looking for a running store that has decades of experience, Omega Sports is your place to go. Omega Sports has more than four decades of running-specific experience, helping customers run more, move more, play more, and live more. Go to omegasports.com and make sure to sign up for their Faster Mega Rewards, where you get $5 of rewards on every $50 that you spend. There's a huge 10% savings that you can use for all of your running gear. At Omega Sports, your savings are faster and they go further just like you. Learn more about them and see their wide selection at omegasports.com. All right, that's it from me today. Thank you for being part of the strength running community and all of your support. We will be in touch very soon.